We serve a living God. We serve the God who spoke in the beginning and things which were not suddenly were. We serve the God who parted the Red Sea in the days of Moses when God set his people uh, free from their bondage in Egypt. We serve the God who stopped the sun in the days of Joshua when Joshua needed more time to complete his operation against the enemies of Israel. We serve a God who is involved in the affairs of his creation. But more important than anything that God has done in the past is the fact that God is still working in the lives of his people even today. I'm always amazed when I talk to people and they talk to me about things that God is doing in their lives, but they do it in a way that they're actually surprised when God shows up. You know, God will do something in their family or he'll answer a prayer or you know, he'll provide in some way miraculously and they'll come and they're so excited and rightfully so when God shows up. But they come in and they're just beaming and glowing. And sometimes, you know, I have to, you know, almost stir it up within myself to be excited with them. And the reason is because I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that God shows up because he shows up. And he says that he's going to show up uh, in our lives in the things. Well, tonight in our chapter, chapter 19, we're going to see God show up in an incredible way for his people in a time when they don't deserve it and they probably didn't really expect it. And so chapter 19, it's a, a unique chapter. It's an incredible chapter. In fact, it is the only chapter in the Bible that is repeated almost verbatim in another place. Second Kings 19 and Isaiah chapter 37 are almost totally identical. There's only one or two words that are different and we'll, you know, I'll point those out a little bit later on uh, where they are and it's kind of irrelevant that they're, that they're different, um, but, but it's repeated and any time God repeats himself, then you know that that's a serious thing that God wants us to consider. And so what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see God show up in a way that's equivalent to what happened at the Red Sea, what happened at the walls of Jericho, equivalent to what took place when the sun stood still in the days of Joshua. It's that big. And it really is a high point in the book of Kings and a bright spot in the Bible. The king that we're studying is King Hezekiah. We're really at the midway point of his reign as we come into this chapter. And we learned last time, which now was three weeks ago, that Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings that Israel had on the other side of King David himself. David was the standard by which all other kings were measured. And Hezekiah probably comes second after him in terms of his greatness uh, and his heart really for the Lord. The nation as a whole at this time, by the time we come to chapter 19, is fragmented and in declension for sure. We saw that the northern 10 tribes have already been carried away into captivity. The northern portion of the land doesn't even belong to Israel anymore. It's been captured by the Assyrian Empire And now the same force that 
undid the north now threatens the south. And that's really the context of where we are chronologically in this is that the north is gone and now the Assyrians are also threatening Judah and King Hezekiah down uh, in the south. And so in the last chapter, and I do this just to bring us back up to speed after three weeks, we saw Sennacherib, who is the king of the Assyrians, carry away the ten tribes and then besiege Jerusalem in the south. So the city of Jerusalem is now surrounded by the strongest, most powerful army that the world could boast of in those days, the army of Sennacherib. And when Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem, saw that he was besieged, his first recourse was to try to pay off Sennacherib. And so he said, how much is it going to cost me to get you to back off? And so Sennacherib named his price. He said, I want so much silver and I want so much gold. And Hezekiah paid it, which was an error that he soon repented of, you know. But he paid the sum that Sennacherib asked for, but it didn't work because Sennacherib received it, but he didn't back down. Instead, what he did is that he sent three messengers, three officers in his administration. And one of them was a fellow that was called the Rabshakeh. And he was a Hebrew-speaking Assyrian. And so he was the spokesman for the three. And what he did is he came in and he brought a very heavy threat upon the, the Jews, the three emissaries of Hezekiah conferring with him and the Assyrians seeking terms of surrender. And so the Rabshakeh threatened. He said, don't think you can trust in your God. Don't think you can trust in Egypt. Don't think you can trust in your military. Don't try to think that you're going to get out of this one. No one has been able to stop Sennacherib and no one is going to. And so the three you know, Hebrew guys, they said, hey, talk a little quieter and please don't speak in Hebrew. You're scaring the people. And then they started to shout in Hebrew and say, we're going to take you out and you're going to you know, starve to death. And it, just these incredible threats that were given. But what we saw and the reason why I recap it like that is that what it is a picture of for you and me is when the enemy comes in like a flood. Because that's exactly what was taking place. The enemy was coming against the people of God and he was using fear and confusion and lies, basically, to bring terms of compromise in terms of surrender. That's what the enemy was seeking to do. And it was working. The threats were getting in, so to speak. And so they hear all of these threats. And at the end of the chapter, they bring the message back to Hezekiah that, man, these guys are serious and they're not backing down. And Hezekiah hears word of it. And that's where we pick up now. And so part one of this message really was what happens when the enemy comes in like a flood. But tonight, part two in chapter 19 what is the believer's source of defense? And so as we come into chapter 19, we're going to see God show up in an absolutely incredible uh, way. Now, the message of this chapter right at the onset for you and me is the privilege and the power of prayer. And the whole message tonight really revolves around verses 14 through 19 in the text, which is the prayer that Hezekiah offers to the Lord. 
If for you and me, I believe that it remains still that prayer is the least employed, the least enjoyed, and yet, and also the most neglected, really, uh, privilege that you and I have with the Lord and in our walk with the Lord. It's one of the most powerful weapons that we have at our disposal, and tonight we're going to be reminded of that again. And so in verse 1, it tells us this. It says that it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it. That is the message from the three uh, officers that had now come back from meeting with Sennacherib's officers. That he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. Now that is a very good thing to do when you find that the enemy comes in like a flood within your life. The first thing that we see him do right here is that he humbles himself. He removes his royal robes, takes off his crown, and he doesn't come into the house of the Lord as a king, but he really comes in as a peasant. The reason is because that's all any of us ever are when we come before the Lord. There's not one of us that's any higher or greater than any other. And when we come to him, we're all on an equal level. And so he humbles himself, realizing that he's not going to be heard because of who he is, but he's going to be heard only because of what he said. God said, call out to me, come to me. And that's the terms on which we come, never because of who we are or of anything that we can boast within ourselves. And so he comes into the presence of the Lord, covered with sackcloth, in humility. And then it says in verse 2 that he sent Eliakim, which was over the household. He would be like the chief steward of the house or the head of the servants. And Shebna, the scribe, he would be over the teachers of the religious duty. And also the elders of the priest. And so that would represent those that would serve in the temple or the religious uh aspect of Israel's administration in that time. And he sent them covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they, uh, and they said unto him, thus saith uh, Hezekiah, this is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. And, and basically he's going to ask Isaiah uh, to pray for them. But I want you to notice something here uh, again concerning Hezekiah's preparation of his heart before the Lord, is that there was an incredible unity that existed within the authorities there in Israel. You have Hezekiah, who was the king. The buck stops with him. But then you also have the servants, and then you have the scribes, which are the teachers or the biblical authorities. Then you have the priests, which are really the spiritual overseers of the land. And, And we see that they're all on the same page concerning this whole thing. And that's a rare thing to have people on the same page, but it's also a very powerful thing. God can do incredible things when there's unity amongst his people. We see that throughout the entire Bible. The two greatest revivals that are recorded on the pages of Scripture are in Nehemiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament and then Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. And in both of those instances where God really poured out his spirit, one of the things that is brought right to the surface is that the people had one heart, one mind, and they were with one accord. In other words, there was unity. They were, they were unified in their understanding of themselves and in their desire to seek the Lord. 
In Psalm 133, the psalmist declares, and he says, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then he says, it's like the anointing oil that was poured on Aaron's head and ran down his beard. The place of anointing where God's spirit really moves, often in a place where there's unity. I think of Peter, who was writing to husbands and wives. And he said that if you're having problems in your marriage, make sure that you fix those problems quickly. He says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath so that your prayers are not hindered. In other words, even just the unity that exists between a husband and a wife has power and authority with God when you pray. And a lack of unity can actually hinder your prayer life in that. And I think of Paul writing to the Philippian church. There was a problem, a schism, a division that was beginning in that church. And Paul wrote a letter to beseech two women that were arguing over something that he doesn't even tell us what it is. But throughout, he urges them to put that away and to take on the mind of Christ and that there would be unity among them that the spirit wouldn't be grieved. And there's something to being unified. God's spirit does not respond well when there's discord or when there's bitterness or strife or anger or ambition or any of those things that cause us to divide from one another. And so we see a unity here, a beautiful picture of it in these men. And then they go to Isaiah. And so the message that they bring to Isaiah now, verse 3, it says, Thus saith Hezekiah, that this is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to the birth and there is not enough strength to bring forth. Now he gives a picture here to describe the feeling. The idea is that of a woman who's in labor. And she's gone through all of the nine months of gestation, bringing forth the development of this child. And now she's come to a place of labor where she's had the contractions and the water's broken. And she's gone through all that it takes to get the baby to the point where now she's finally going to push for delivery. And now she's completely out of strength. And there's not one ounce of energy left in her to push to the point where now both the child and the mother are in danger of perishing because of it. And that's how, how Hezekiah relates the feeling that they're feeling through the threats of the Rabshakeh now. And, and the idea is this, is that the nation is in really a bad situation. I mean, they've been turning their backs on God for decades now, collectively. And, and though there have been pockets of revival, the, the trend has been downward now for a long time. And ever since Hezekiah came on the scene, there's been revival in the south. God's spirit has poured out and and great things have happened. And Hezekiah's saying, basically, it's too little, too late. That's what it feels like. We've made reforms, we've repented, we've turned, and we've come all the way to the point now where we're going to see God do an incredible work in resurrecting the nation, but it's not going to happen. We've come this far, but it's not going to work. That's how they feel. And so, verse 4, the message continues, It may be that the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that are left. And so he asks for prayer. So the servants of King Hezekiah came now to Isaiah. 
That's another thing I think that is absolutely critical for us in our Christian experience. And that is to have people in our lives that we can go to and ask for prayer. God hears prayers that are offered on our behalf, and he gives them equal weight with prayers that we would offer ourselves. And so I hope that you have that. I hope in your life there are people that you can call on in certain times or certain things that you're going through and ask them, would you just pray for me in this? I'm too close to it or I'm too confused or I don't even know how to pray as I ought or, or, or whatever the case might be. But God will hear. And so would you just pray? You don't even need to know all the details of the situation, but would you please just pray for me? And so that's what he does here with Isaiah, sending these messengers now to it, and so they come. And so then Isaiah said unto them, the reply now comes from Isaiah, Thus shall you say to your master, thus saith the Lord, be not afraid. I love the first response that Isaiah gives back to them. If you look back at the message that was brought to Isaiah from these three emissaries, there was really two things communicated to Isaiah. First of all was the fear. Hey, this is a real threat that we're facing right now. The Assyrians are a powerful force and no one's been able to stand before them. And we are at threat here of ceasing to exist as a national entity. There's fear in that. And that's a legitimate fear. But there's also hope. The second part of the message that he gives is pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will hear the words that the Rabshakeh blasphemed him with and he'll be willing to help. And the result of fear coupled with hope was a request for prayer. And the result of the prayer was the casting out of the fear. Do you see that? Now, I believe that fear plus hope will always bring us to a place of prayer. Fear without hope will always bring us to a place of despair, where there is no hope. We have fear, something's going to happen, but without hope, then there's nothing for us to do but dwell upon the thing that we're fearing. If we have hope without fear, that often leads to presumption or over-self-confidence. Well, this is just going to work out. Everything is just going to be fine. And I don't have to even think about this at all. It's nothing at all. And oftentimes that leads to prayerlessness because we are independent. We don't need. But when there's a legitimate fear, but we trust in the one who says he'll help, we have hope, we bring it to prayer. And then the Bible says that when we do that, perfect love casts out all fear. And that's exactly what happens here. It says, be not afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, and this is what God says he's going to do now. I will send a blast upon him. Now that word in the Hebrew language is the word ruach. And it's the word that's translated spirit all throughout. In fact, there's only two places in the whole Old Testament where Ruach is translated blast, and this is one of them. And if you're reading the New King James right now, then you'll see that the word spirit is actually the one that's employed by the editors of the New King James. But basically saying, I will put a spirit upon him, and he will hear a rumor, and he'll return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So understand that here's the answer that comes from Isaiah. God says, I don't want you to be afraid of this threat because this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to cause him to hear a rumor. And when he hears that rumor, my spirit is going to anoint that rumor in his heart to the point where he's going to believe it and he'll draw his forces back from you. And that the ultimate outcome of the whole thing is that he's going to be slain in his own land. But realize that at this point, that's nothing more than just a promise. The reality for Hezekiah is that as he looks out of his palace window, he sees tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of Assyrian troops that don't look like they're going anywhere and don't look like they're going to be swayed from their purpose until they've accomplished what it is that they've come forth to do. So now Hezekiah has a choice whether or not he's going to believe the word that comes from Isaiah or whether he's going to trust in what he sees with his eyes instead. Well, watch what happens. It says, so Rabshakeh returned, and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, which was one of the smaller cities in Judah, in the vicinity of Jerusalem. For he had heard that he was departed from Lachish, which was another small city in Judah. And when he, this is uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, heard say, there's the rumor, Of Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against you. He sent messengers again to Hezekiah. So pause right now and catch the scene. Here's what's going on. Is that the forces of Sennacherib are surrounding Jerusalem. Sennacherib himself is leading the battle on another front in one of the smaller cities that surround the area. While he's there, he hears a rumor that This other king, Terhaka from Ethiopia, is going to come across the desert and he's going to actually help to hurt the Assyrians. So he hears this rumor now and he's going to respond to the rumor. But notice what he does first, verse 10. He says, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, let not your God in whom you trust deceive you saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozin and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden, which were in Thelazar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, of Hena and of Iva? And so he basically says, listen, no land has been secure enough to stop my forces. No God has been strong enough to stop our gods. And no king has been wise enough to thwart our plans. So don't get overconfident in thinking that you, through your prayer or your trust in God, that you're going to stop us either. But notice what's happening. He's actually in retreat, but his threats are getting louder. Would you understand that that's one of the ploys of our enemy? Is that when he's actually in a position where he's being beaten back, he barks his threats even louder towards our lives. It's one of his ways. He tries to get us to doubt even when he's already in retreat. And so he sends this message back to Hezekiah after Hezekiah received word from Isaiah that's an even louder threat than the one that he had brought personally. Now watch how Hezekiah responds to this threat. Verse 14. 
And so Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. Now that's one of the most incredible verses in the entire Bible. If that verse isn't highlighted and underlined and bookmarked and almost worn out on the page, maybe it should be. Because for me, that's just an absolute incredible picture of how to deal with so many things that come upon our lives. He goes into the temple of the Lord. He takes the letter. He gets down on his face and he spreads the whole thing out. And it's a perfect picture of just saying, God, would you answer this? I don't want to answer this. Would you deal with this whole thing? And it says that Hezekiah then prayed before the Lord and then he said, And now he's going to give this prayer to God that really it's all of five verses, this prayer that he's going to offer. But it's one of the most incredible prayers and examples of prayer in the entire Bible that, that can be given. And it's basically a prayer that's given in four parts. First of all, a recognition of who he's talking to as he addresses God. And then second of all, uh, an appeal for God to search out the situation. And then third of all, uh, an acknowledgement of the seriousness of the threat. And then finally, just an asking for God to help. And so he begins this prayer with a recognition of who God is. And so Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, you are the God, even you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, for you have made heaven and earth. He begins by very simply addressing who it is that he's speaking to. And I find that that is a very important part of any impacting prayer time that you or I might have, is to take some time, first of all, to recognize who it is that we're speaking to. When the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And they did that on two separate occasions during the ministry of Jesus on the earth. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Just like John taught his disciples also. In both instances, Jesus gave the same answer. Essentially, it was what we call the Lord's Prayer. Most of us uh, are familiar with those words. If we don't know it by heart from an upbringing that we had, uh, we've certainly seen it or heard it several places or times. But how does Jesus begin that? He says, when you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The very first thing in Jesus' model prayer that he gives for us as he's teaching us to pray is that we would regard or acknowledge who God is, who it is that we're speaking to. And that's so important that we recognize that. Hezekiah does it here by recognizing that he's the Lord, that he's the Lord God. That's what he calls him of Israel. And then he says, him that dwells between the cherubim. In other words, he ascribes to him the highest place of authority in all the universe. You're the one who's seated and enthroned upon heaven, who's above and over all. That there's nothing anywhere, there's no king or kingdom There's no authority or principality or power that can come even close to touching what your power is because you are over all. And not only the things in heaven, but he says also over all the kingdoms of the earth because you made heaven and earth. Now for you and me to have a time where we engage in prayer and we skip this part of it, 
that is the understanding of who it is that we're speaking to, is to fail in a great part or portion of what prayer is intended to do within us. See, oftentimes when I pray and I come into the presence and I begin this way by just saying, recognizing who he is in that way, my heart becomes one with him. I recognize who I am. And I also recognize who he is. And all of a sudden, everything in life is put into this incredible perspective. He's God, and I'm not. He's overall, and I can do nothing on my own. And it sets me in a place where I recognize my utter dependence and my utter helplessness before him. It also sobers me to realize who I'm talking to. I'm talking to God. I'm not talking to a higher power or something that I'm trying to tap into or just a resource room or a bank account. I'm talking to Almighty God, the one who calls himself my Father, who paid the price for my redemption with his blood. And to recognize that, to realize that as I come before him in that way, it sets me in the right place. And oftentimes I find this. That if I jump right into the business portion of my prayer and I skip the part of just adoration, of just worship, of understanding who he is, then oftentimes I go through the mechanics of prayer, but the work of prayer has not really been accomplished within my heart. I've gone through the motions, but I haven't really connected in the way that God would have me to connect with him. And so he begins by recognizing, adoring who God is. Then he asks God, secondly, He appeals to him to just search out the situation. He says, Lord, bow down your ear and hear. He says, Lord, open your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Now, I like this because what he does here is that he asks God to come into the situation, but he doesn't feel like he has to go through and give him every little detail of the whole thing. Have you ever been praying with someone who you know, just wants to give God all the details. And they're like, okay, and then God, uh, he said this, and then I responded this way, and then after that, they said this, and then I said that, God, and then he said this and turned around here, and then she walked in the room, so she only heard this much of it. No, wait, that was after. And they're just going through the whole thing, you know, and you're going, we love one another, you know, but, you know, listen, listen, listen. He just says simply, God, Did you hear what he said about you? That's all he says. He says, God, would you just search out the situation? And I'm comforted that that's enough. It's enough for us to come in and say, God, you know all of the things that are going on right now through this. And you know all the implications of it, both in my life and in the lives of those that are affected by it. And Lord, you know how this affects your reputation. So Lord, you search it out. And so he just appeals to God to do that. And then he acknowledges the danger of it. He says, of a truth, Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands. And they've cast their gods, lowercase g, into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Yes, Lord, no other nation has been able to stand before the Assyrians. But they're not your nation, Lord. And then he says, verse 19, now, therefore, O Lord, here's the petition. Here's what he asks. I beseech thee, save us out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, even you alone. And so the the petition that he asks is very simply, God, would you save us out of his hand? Now, 
One of the reasons that I absolutely love this prayer is because of the contrast between the severity of the situation and the simplicity of the prayer. Have you ever noticed the difference in our prayers depending on the about prayer? Because so often, how hindered are we because we feel like we don't have enough words or enough time to give a situation the kind of prayer we feel that it deserves? It's simple, it's short, it's sincere, and it's serious, and it's powerful. And that's the way God calls us to pray. He says, listen, if you would just pray, then I'll hear from heaven. And so he prays, he offers his prayer, and we'll talk more about it in a few minutes. But it says, then Isaiah, verse 20, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah. So the answer comes, saying, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. That which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. I don't know of very many more comforting things in all of life than to just know that God heard your prayer. To just know that he heard it. I don't sometimes even need to know what the answer is or how it's all going to work out. If I just know, God, you heard my prayer, what a comfort that is. And that's what God says. So this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now, The prayer was offered in four parts. The response is offered in five, five parts. That is the first thing that God says now as he speaks to the situation and to Sennacherib is that God identifies himself to Sennacherib. Watch this. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion has despised thee. And laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. God identifies himself two ways to Sennacherib. Number one, he identifies himself as the father of a virgin daughter. I love that. Because I have... Two daughters at my house right now. One's 13 and the other is going to be 10 in just a couple of days. And they are just the joy of life. You know, these two bright spots in my home. And if someone were to come to one of my two daughters, my virgin daughters, and threaten them in some way, seeking to wipe them out and to existentially, you know, destroy them or or eliminate them in some way, how would I, as their father, respond to that? And that's the first line with which God answers this defense. He's like, who do you think you are coming against my virgin daughter with threats and blasphemies the way that you have? I love that. And then God, second of all, identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel. Then he moves on and he addresses the claims of Sennacherib, this mighty man, verse 23. He says, by thy messengers, you have reproached the Lord and have said with the multitude of my chariots, I am come to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof and the choice fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the lodgings of his borders and uh, and into the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places, speaking of all the wells that they had stopped and the waters that they had cut off from uh, the besieged palaces and whatnot. So God's, God looks at all of the claims, and, he's, and he basically showing that he's been listening. 
And that God's been paying attention to all the things that Sennacherib has said. And now God answers those claims in verse 25. He says, have you not heard long ago how I have done it? And of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that you should be to lay waste to fence cities into ruinous heap. In other words, God's saying, you boast in such a way as you think that it's your might and your power that it has allowed you to do what you have done. But what you're forgetting is that I'm the one who's the Lord over all kingdoms. And that I'm the one that raised you up to be the rod of my chastisement against the nations that you've destroyed. I'm the one that's done this, not you. That's what God spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10. He says that I am the one who is chastening with the rod of the Assyrians. In other words, I'm using the Assyrians to chasten these nations. God's saying it wasn't you, it was me that did it. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and as the corn that was blasted before it was grown up. In other words, God's saying, I was working on both sides of the thing. Not only am I the one that gave you your power, but I was actually weakening those other nations at the same time. I was making you strong and I was making them weak to make your power seem successful in your ventures and all the things that you did. You were playing video game chess on the easy level. You ever do that? You know, you do something and you set it on the easiest setting and you win every time and it makes you feel really good about yourself. And then you're like, just for kicks, let me put it up on difficult. And you get your clock clean, you know. And that's, that's exactly what God says is going on. I've made it easy for you to do this thing. It's me that's done it. And so now notice what God says to him. He addresses the claim, he answers it, and now he gives his sentence. He says, but I know thy abode. You know that? That's King James. You know what that is? I know where you live. I don't want God to say that about me in this way. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> For God to come and say, I know, I know where you live. And I know you're going out and you're coming in and I know your rage against me. And because your rage against me and your tumult or your storm has come up into my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in thy lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Now this is speaking directly to the Assyrians because that was their method. When they would come into an area and they would wipe it out, they would take their captives and they would put hooks in their noses or in their jaws and they would string them together and keep them in line as they would lead them back to Assyria. And now God's saying, that's the exact thing that I'm going to do to you. I'm going to put a hook in your nose and in your jaw and I'm going to lead you back by the way in which you came. It's, it's amazing. That's all God says to him. He doesn't give him any more than that. It's kind of like, you know, the parent who looks at the child and the child knows they're going to get it. And the dad just kind of looks at him and says, you're going to get it. And then, and the, you know, the child freezes and looks at the dad, but you're in public or something. And so, you know, they can't do it right there, you know, and it's just like, you know, you're, you're going to get it. You know, you ever do that dads, you know, and, and the kid knows you're at the mall and, and, and they just looked at you and they just kind of get in line. And then the whole way home, you're looking in the rear view mirror there back there. You're just giving them the eye the whole time. You're going to get it. You're going to, that's, that's what God does. He's just, he looks at this guy and big difference, I guess, between, you know, us and our kids. But he's like, you're going to get it. He's like, you're, you're done. You're toast. And then he speaks to Hezekiah in verse 29. He says, and this shall be a sign unto you 
that you shall eat this year such things as grow by themselves, and in the second year that which springs of the same. And in the third year you'll sow and you'll reap and you'll plant vineyards and you're going to eat the fruits thereof. Is that yeah, it's going to, you're going to eat this year, you're not going to be out in the fields, everything's been besieged and you're going to have to eat what grows of itself next year the same thing, but in the third year you're going to sow and you're going to reap again and you're going to enjoy life the way that it used to be before any of this ever came. This trial is going to end and it's going to be on the other side of it as though it never came at all. That's an incredible word that God gives to Hezekiah. Maybe that's a word for the Lord for some of you here tonight. You're going through something that is so incredibly difficult. And you think that life is never going to be the same on the other side of this. This is just beyond anything that I could comprehend in its difficulty. But understand this. that With our God, he always has one hand on the thermometer and the other hand on the thermostat. He knows how hot it is and he's the one that's controlling the knob. And when he brings forth and accomplishes in our lives that which he's designing the trials and the troubles to accomplish, he brings things back to a place of normal and even then to a place of blessing. And what seems to us that can never again be what it should be, God says it's not only going to be what it should be, it's going to be even better than it was before. He says this year, next year, what grows of itself, but in the third you're going to sow, you're going to reap, you're going to eat. And the remnant that has escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there. Now that's amazing. You got 185,000 troops outside and God's saying not even one arrow is going to be shot inside the city. I mean, you would think that one person would just shoot an arrow for fun just to see if he can hit the wall. And God says not even one arrow is going to be shot and, and, and nor come before it with a shield nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And that's the power that we have in the word of God, is that we never stand upon our own sake when we come before the Lord with our needs. The Bible says that we've been given very great and precious promises. And that it's that which we hold before the Lord. We say, God, this is what you said that you would do within my life. There's nothing more powerful than when a man or a woman of God holds the word of God before the throne of God and calls on the name of God. And that's what Hezekiah does. And God says, for my own sake, I'm going to do this. And now watch the outcome. One verse. And it came to pass that night. So the very night that the prayer and then the reply is offered that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I love this. There's no battle. There's no fight. There's no conflict. One angel goes through the camp at night and single-handedly takes out 185,000 
of the most ruthless army that existed in the world. I want to know what that angel looked like. I mean, really, I mean, think about it here, incredibly. I mean, we get this picture in our mind sometimes of angels, don't we? We picture, like, blonde hair and this beautiful, like, woman with white robes and glorious wings, you know, and the whole thing. This totally blows that for me because now she's got an M60 and she's wearing, like, camouflage gear and, you know, she's got a knife in this thing and a dagger and she's loaded up like Arnold Schwarzenegger in, you know, or something and, and just goes through this entire, but it's just one angel, just one angel goes through this whole thing. In the book of Revelation, we see one angel that's holding back the four winds of the heavens. I mean, that means controlling, holding back all of the weather, all the currents of everything that sways the whole earth, one angel. In Revelation 10, we see another angel. It says John saw, and and this angel comes down one foot in the sea, one foot on the land, and clothed in in a cloud and with the sun in their face and the rainbow on their head and comes down and just John sees this incredible thing. Just picture that. One foot in the ocean, one foot on the land, holding this book. God says to John, who sees it, he says, John, go take the book out of the angel's hand. Picture John going, you take the book out of the angel's hand. I'm not going near that thing, you know, and the whole thing. But it's just one angel. And we see the power of just one angel here. We look at Jesus on the cross. And as he hung there, and they reviled him, and they said, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? He looked at them and he said, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. 24,000 angels, and they would immediately come right now at my disposal. But he was there on purpose, and he was saying that I'm there on purpose. I've got a reason for being here on this cross. But if one angel can go through the camp of the Assyrians and wipe out 185,000 men, and Jesus said at his disposal he could call in 12 legions of angels, in fact, he said more than 12 legions of angels, well, then what does that mean for you and me? Because the Bible says that the angels exist to serve God for us. In other words, they're sent forth by him, on our behalf. What we realize is that God has these incredible resources that he's ready to dispatch and put forward to help in our times of need. But I wonder how often we fail to enjoy it, often maybe just because we fail to pray. I wonder what it's like when God sees a group of people gather together for prayer on earth. He's looking down and he sees and they're there and he sees their heads bow and he goes, okay, hey, Gabriel, Michael, Gather them here. They're going to pray. And and God's getting ready to dispatch, you know, and do things and power. And people are arming up and battles ready to go and all this stuff. And God says, now, listen, listen, listen. Lord, bless this meal as we're about to receive it. In Jesus' name. He goes, oh, another meal prayer. Oh, man. He says, all right, Admiral, go bless the meal, you know, and. You know, how little do we enjoy, you know, what God might have, the power that he's got ready to just dispatch at our disposal. Because, I mean, this is huge what we see happening here in this whole uh, thing. This is bigger what takes place here than when Joshua saw the walls of Jericho fall down. This is bigger than that, to see 185,000 without a fight just drop. This is bigger than Elisha and the 450 prophets of Baal. This is bigger than Samson, who killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a a donkey. This is bigger than David in any battle that he ever fought. It's bigger than Gideon, who slew the Midianites with (coughs) an army of just 
300. This is bigger than almost anything that we've seen in the Bible. And what we see is that it comes as a, as a result or a response to this man just giving prayer, just offering prayer to God in the middle of a situation. What can't God do when we call on him? And so we see it, and then just to wind down, and then uh, a few comments. It says, so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed, and he went and returned, and he dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass that as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. So exactly as God said it would happen, killed in his own land. And they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, then reigned uh, in his his stead on the other thing. But in conclusion, what do you think is the point that the Holy Ghost is trying to get across to us tonight as we look at uh, this chapter? In first of all, putting it here, but then also in repeating it almost exactly in Isaiah chapter 37. And I, and I believe what it speaks to for you and me is what do we do when we're facing problems within our lives? We always have two choices. We can always either choose to deal with it ourselves, to take stock in our resources and assess the the situation according to our own wisdom and then try to attack it in our own strength. Or we can turn it over to the Lord as he calls us to and ask him to deal with it for us. We see other kings before Hezekiah facing similar situation to what Hezekiah is in right now. We see them numbering their army and then going forth to battle. We see them hiring foreign armies to try to come and help with them. We see them bribing their invaders and paying them off. We see them surrendering without a fight. But here we see Hezekiah taking the threat, laying it open before the Lord, and asking God for help. And it's an incredible exhortation to you and I as to what we're to do when we have a need, is that we're to bring it before the Lord. Second thing I'd like to point out in this is this, is that Hezekiah uh, didn't speak to God as a king, but he spoke to God as a man. And I know I said that earlier in the study, but I really want to reinforce that, and here's why. Because oftentimes I think many of us don't pray or we feel that our prayers are hindered because of who we are. We think, who am I that God would hear my prayer or that God would want to help me? I mean, maybe if I was some spiritual giant, or if I was the leader of a nation, or if I was a person of influence, that, that those are the people that God kind of has on his radar. But, but someone like me, God doesn't have any reason or time or concern for, for what I, I want to say. But it's interesting to me that Hezekiah realized that it wasn't the fact that he was a king that would make him heard, that he had to remove himself from that position of king before he thought he could be heard. That's the more true statement. It's when we, when we lower ourselves to the point of humility and putting off our position and our pride and thinking that we deserve something, that it's then that we are more often heard by God. I love Luke chapter 12, verse 32. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus said. It's an incredible phrase. Uh, sometimes, you know, a written text doesn't capture the emotion behind something, but I love this phrase because it surely does. It's Luke 12, 32. Jesus said it. He said, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oftentimes we feel that prayer is trying to overcome God's reluctance to help us. But prayer isn't trying to overcome God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness in submission to his way. 
and his way is that we pray. It also speaks to us, this chapter, concerning the importance of perseverance in prayer in the face of despair. Did you catch what happened earlier in the chapter? Remember when Isaiah sent his, or I'm sorry, Hezekiah sent his messengers to Isaiah and asked Isaiah to pray? And Isaiah returned the message, remember? He said, hey, it's not going to work. Everything's going to work out. Don't be afraid. And then after that, Sennacherib sent the louder threat and Hezekiah responded the second time when he went into the temple with prayer by laying it out and open before the Lord. And there's an important point there that I don't want you to miss, and that's this, is that oftentimes prayer requires some perseverance. Have you ever found that sometimes you pray about something and God will give you like a temporary reprieve or like a glimmer of hope, like he heard you or that the situation is turning around? And then all of a sudden, like a day or two later, it seems like everything just gets compoundedly worse. You're like, oh my goodness, Lord, I thought you were helping me in this. And now it's like, it's like I didn't even pray or it's like you're mocking my prayer. Because I, if I didn't pray, it wasn't this bad. You kind of feel that way. Oftentimes the temptation is, isn't it, to just go into despair and think, okay, well, this is a hopeless situation. I might as well just throw in the towel here because God's an obvious light. No, 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 don't do that. Because remember, the enemy has limited resources. God doesn't. Satan was being pulled away from them as he was thundering that secondary threat. Persevere in prayer. Because it was the second time when Hezekiah came that that's what ultimately led the way to the final and ultimate victory. What if Hezekiah had gone into a despair when the second threat came? And he didn't go into the temple, but instead he garnered the troops. I don't know what the outcome of the story would be, but I can tell you one thing almost for sure. Even if he got a victory, it wouldn't have been 185,000 dead troops killed by an angel in one night. Prayer and perseverance go together. It's so important that it happen. I think of Daniel. For 21 days, he prayed. He got the answer to his prayer on the 21st day. And when he got that answer, the angel said, on the very first day that you started praying, I was sent with the answer. And it took me 21 days to get here because there was a war that you wouldn't understand. But what if Daniel stopped praying after day one or day two or day seven? He wouldn't have gotten the answer that he was waiting uh, there to receive uh, from the Lord in, in the whole thing uh, because of it. I think of Elisha who prayed seven times. I think of Jacob who held on. Remember when he wrestled with Jesus that night? And Jesus said, let me go. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he persevered and he held on. And we see it all throughout the Bible. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we pray 24-7 or that our prayers have to become lofty or complicated. It just means that at each step, at every juncture, as we're waiting for God to come through in a situation, we continually lift the situation up in prayer. And it never has to be more than five verses, like it was with Hezekiah, but we don't give up. We continue to pray before the Lord. What are you facing here tonight? What situation, what Sennacherib, is surrounding you in whatever way or whatever context that means in the whole uh, thing. Do you think that maybe God is willing to handle it for you and maybe he's willing to even handle it better than you would be able to handle it yourself? I want to close with this and the worship team can come. This is a, um, a quote from William Gurnall who uh, was a Puritan writer in the 1600s but 
He wrote a volume on spiritual warfare. And he says this about prayer. And I'll share it with you. He says, prayer is the key that has opened and again shut heaven. It has vanquished mighty armies and unlocked such secrets as past the skill of the very devil himself to find out. It has strangled desperate plots in the very womb wherein they were conceived and made those engines of cruelty prepared against the saints recoil upon the inventors of them so that they have inherited the gallows which they did set up for others. At the knock of prayer, prison doors have opened. The grave had delivered up its dead and the sea's leviathan, not able to digest his prey, has been made to vomit it up again. It has stopped the sun's chariot in the heavens, yea, made it go back. And that which surpasses all, it has taken hold of the Almighty when on his full march against persons and people and has put him to a merciful retreat. Indeed, by the power prayer has with God, it comes to prevail over all the rest. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this testimony of what you are willing to do in the lives of your people. And we ask tonight, Lord, that something would be stirred in our hearts also as we consider the call to pray, to come before you and to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And so, Lord, in this most trying time of human history and in this complex world that we live in, Lord, we pray with your disciples, teach us to pray, not just the words that we would say, O God, but that you would give us the heart, that you would give us the will, the mind, the faith, and the readiness, and the perseverance to pray. So, Father, take what we've heard tonight, seal it in our hearts and our minds, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.